Hello and welcome to this podcast of the Sheffield Institute for International Development. My name is Judith Krauss. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at SID. Today's podcast is a conversation on conservation between five researchers, Christine Nau from the University of Dar es Salaam, Thabit Jacob from the University of Dodoma, Dan Brockington from the University of Sheffield, Wilhelm Kibango from the University of Dodoma, and myself. We were privileged to have our Tanzanian colleagues visiting in the month of July 2019 and decided to record this conversation on the past, present and future of conservation with them. Apologies for the occasional glitches in sound quality. The podcast studio was too small a space for everyone, but that also means we get to benefit from everyone's expertise and incorporate a diversity of voices and viewpoints. We start with a short round of introductions and I will then interject a few guiding questions. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Christine Noy. I am a visiting uh, collaborator of uh, the uh, Center for International Development. I come from the University of Dar es Salaam, I teach uh, in the Department of Geography. And my current involvement in a conservation-related project is with Copenhagen Business School and also University of Sheffield, where we are looking at new partnerships for sustainability. And the project is focusing on three different uh, natural resources in Tanzania, wildlife, forest, and coastal resources, uh, particularly looking at how um, new partnerships have evolved in these uh, different uh, sectors, um, meaning that we want to understand whether um, complex or simple Partnerships have different ecological and sustainability, I mean, ecological and livelihood sustainability outcomes. So we are in three different regions in Tanzania, Mtora for coastal resources, Lindi for forest resources, and Profiji uh, district for wildlife resources. Hey, Habit Jacob, I teach at the Department of Geography at the University of Tudoma. I'm now a doctor fellow at Roskilde University in Denmark, and I'm here as a visiting researcher. I work on coal extraction at the moment, so not really directly uh, related to conservation. But there are aspects to do because coal extraction takes place in contested land, so there's some element of conservation here and there, but not really directly as compared to the rest of the colleagues here. Yeah, we're looking forward to the rest of the chat. My name is Dan Brockington, I'm the Director of the Sheffield Institute for International Development. Um, I collaborate with Christine on the NEPTIS project, on the New Partnerships for Sustainability, um, and Tabitha and I have written together on Tanzanian Forest Conservation. Um, another project I'm working on is concerns what we call green mentality, the, the changing um, subjectivities which are associated with the move towards green economies. Maybe there. Yeah, I'm Wilhelm Kiwango. I'm a lecturer at the Department of Geography in the University of Padoma. I'm here as a visiting um, collaborator in the Convivial Conservation Project. Of recent, I've been involved in work on the Convivial Conservation Project, of which we are trying to look at new way of uh, looking at conservation, and especially the conservation of uh, apiscalators in Tanzania and its doctoral research. My name is Judith Krauss. I'm a postdoc at the Sheffield Institute for International Development at the University of Sheffield, and I also do research on the Convivial Conservation Project. 
which, as Wilhelm just explained, tries to work out ways of coexistence between apex predators, wolves in Finland, lions in Tanzania, jaguars in Brazil, and bears in California, and the communities who live with them. And this approach hopefully will focus on sort of more transformative social justice-based approaches to conservation. The next question would be, what are the big ideas or what are the governance approaches that are manifest in conservation policy and praxis? It's a mix, really, for me. Um, We still have uh, protected areas um, which are highly... um, protected from above by the state and very much exclusive um, of communities, local communities especially, and the policies are towards actually that exclusion and it has been there for a long time. So these have remained military strongholds uh, as it has been for a long time. Yet we we have policies that are promoting community-based conservation and um, a lot of work has been going into making communities partners, conservation partners. So we have seen both top-down approaches and bottom-up approaches um, being implemented on on the same uh, protected areas and local communities around them. Uh, we still have a lot of restrictions for access uh, uh, by some, especially local communities, and of course access is is um, is granted for other, other actors, including private enterprises and and, and, and the like. So it's um, in a way policies are um, ensuring that there is protection of biodiversity, protection of wildlife, of forest coastal resources, but at the same time ensuring that local communities are not only um, um, participating as partners, but also being controlled in terms of uh, what they have always been uh, believed to be causing, which is damage to these protected areas. So as elsewhere in the, in the, in the, in the world, the country's policies are um, geared towards militarization almost uh, in every sector. We have seen more um, uh, transformation of game rangers, for instance, into kind of paramilitary uh, sections, which is aligned to the mainstream uh, Tanzania People's Defense Force. And this has a lot of implications in terms of how communities actually participate, how they uh, benefit from their involvement in the conservation. So for me, policies are are still top down, um, a lot of restrictions uh, for local communities, and going towards militarization more than providing access uh, or becoming eco-partners, as it is envisioned in most of the global policies. I'll probably talk about the broader ideas, uh, governance ideas that I think have unfolded in the last four years with the current administration, some of which I think Christina's touched on. Uh, some of these are probably continuity of what we have seen 
in the last 20 years, a lot of these are also new. So we have seen things like uh, there's a big discourse about resource sovereignty that you know the country has to go to own its own resources and should not be dictated by foreign powers. And in 2017, we saw the government pass three laws stating that the Tanzania for the first time has got its own sovereignty over its natural resources. That will have implications on on, uh, on conservation. But also we have seen, you know, this discussions around resource nationalism where you've got a new president who sort of like promises to reverse many years of neoliberalism in Tanzania and portray himself as a very pro-poor, anti-elite. Uh, so these are very broad ideas, but they may have uh, implications on conservation. We've seen, I don't want to say, you know, high modernism, this is not James Scott, but maybe return of modernization where... The president talks about industrialization as the main thing, industrialization, industrialization, and modernization. And Tanzania is now building a huge hydrodome in a very contested conservation area. And the president was very clear that we need, the country needs power, needs to generate power and be energy secure and be modern society. And, and conservation in that case is not really a priority in that case. Uh, I think Christina said it very well about the strong role of the security forces. Uh, this has been a main thing, not just in conservation, but more broadly. But I think the, the, the you know the the message is very clear when a, a, a military general was was appointed to be the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Natural Resources. So the thinking within conservation has got a very strong military uh, background in that sense. And to add to that, because I think you talking principally from a Tanzanian perspective on those trends uh, but I see in that the Tanzanian circumstances a number of uh, trends which you can also track um, globally um, one of these is um, the continued persistent um, territorial approach to conservation um, unsurprisingly where conservation's progress is marked by the new lands which are added to conservation estate and this is built into the um, requirements like the actually actually targets um, seeking is it seventeen percent of the um, purpose area particular habitats to be conserved in protected areas. Um, and that is combined with a countervailing tendency, again this is speaking globally, of um, sharing power and sharing resources over that land. Now this is very patchily implemented. In fact, in the Tanzanian case, um, they've in some respects moved away from sharing power, such that wildlife management areas, for example, used to have people in them, and they, I forget how many years ago now, but they then changed legislation such that people were to be evicted, have been evicted from wildlife management areas in Tanzania, sort of cleansing taking place. Um, but the countervailing trend is, can be visible in indigenous conservation areas or indigenous protected areas, which are built around sharing power, or rather built in theory around sharing power. But again, the practice is very different. The Forest Rights Act in India, which recognised the rights of forest residents who could prove they had lived in particular forests to carry on living there. Um, what's fascinating about this is the um, unevenness of the application. So the 
village wildlife management areas in Tanzania, for example, again, built on sharing power, um, but often end up concentrating authority and adding to the, to the power of the armed forces, police and conservation, um, and taking land and resources effectively away from villages. It's a classic case of all forms of decentralisation and deconcentration of power. But this is then re- this deconcentration is resisted at high levels, and so you get a lot of fights over how much devolution takes place. And there's classic cases in indigenous protected areas in Australia, whereby um, the terms of the, of, the, of the power sharing have been. Um, unequal um, in some cases and, and, and more equal in others. So it's, it's, it's an uneven story. Then there's, there's also quite some interesting and, and rather alarming systematic changes which are not based on so much about the power of a territory and, or, and sharing of that power, but rather the changes that, that, that apply to conservation because of changes in policy, for example, with respect to wildlife poaching. You can see this in Russell and Duffy's work in the Biosec project of how the militarisation of the conservation has taken place because of concerns over poaching, which aren't just based about territories, but are based about value chains of ivory and rhino horn, but which bring in new ways of thinking about conservation and new logics of poaching conservation, which are um, quite alarming, really. Yeah, I would also add to the uh, where that is ended in this crisis conservation that we are having with militarisation that is emanating from the very ideas that the market-based, capitalist-based ideas that we thought would motivate conservation and policing, especially the wonderful management areas in Tanzania, where they had practically um, failed to reach the desired objectives because of, again, this uh, exclusionness that has been there. And tending to get back to the ideas of, of, of pure protectionist approach, as we have seen nowadays. There's a lot of areas that have been proposed to be protected instead of being promoted for conservation, protected in the sense that it is under the strict command and control approach. We have had some emergencies, for example, the Udara emergencies have been proposed to be a national park. We have other already designations, like the Bilibi, already recently in the Northwestern Tanzania that have been promoted to national park, therefore increasing substantially the protected area network. And this is actually fostering the idea of the mainstream, mainstream uh, to go from working to mainstream conservation ideas, where we have also areas put into conservation militarization. But then I would say this is, is kind of being counterproductive with the existing policies of more decentralization, more uh, authority to communities to protect this kind of area. So I would say there is a mix of uh, these big ideas, government's approach to conservation, but then with big mixed objectives uh, uh, and mixed outcomes as well. You've spoken about those very strongly exclusion-based protectionist practices, but also militarization. You've spoken about market-based approaches. How would you say these different approaches have evolved over time? Yes, I would say, for example, from from the current judgment of convivial conservation, I can see very clearly the trends in Tanzania because we started with the street conservationist approach. Uh, in which it excluded humans from nature, strictly no interaction between human and nature. Humans were considered as enemies. But then 
we, 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 we moved from that, from seeing people as enemies of nature to seeing people as part of nature, therefore, as part of our process of ability. But again, that did not uh, solve the problem of, uh, of biodiversity loss, habitat loss, species extinction. We still see those kind of problems quite uh, being uh, manifested right now. So there is a very strong um, a propensity to move back to the protectionist approach, and that's what um, um, ideas and I think it's like we've been going back and forth you know trying out this and that this and that and, and looks like nothing is really working and it's, it's, it's a crisis of conservation ideas going back and forth between different uh, practice but at least now if I get it right one thing that is clearly coming out very strongly is uh, militarization especially the current uh, government in Tanzania you know the, the military really plays a quite strong strong role and just continue on that militarization. I would interest to go back to the communities and the role that the communities are currently playing in this militarization agenda. Um, those are push for these communities to, to be on the um, margins as poachers, as, as uh, encroachers to protected areas. And community-based conservation was supposed to, you know, create some harmony with uh, with protected areas, which it did for some extent, but it didn't really reduce um, the threats that have been there. And uh, with time, these communities have also evolved as uh, also part of um, the um, building of the military through, for instance, game, uh, village game scouts. These have been trained for over two decades of community-based conservation, and they are there in the village with all the skills, and these are also being transformed, as, as we speak, skilled uh, in terms of dealing with, uh, with uh, uh, wildlife crimes. Uh, if we look at how uh, these communities are, are considered on the one side as enemies, as um, threats to wildlife, but on the other side as, you know, they are being trained to be protectors of wildlife, it's going back and forth. And we have seen now um, a very new way of involving in the communities, which is community intelligence with a, with a very strong um, support from from international conservation uh, donors and the NGOs. The states also have set aside some funds for community intelligence and how it works is completely um, transforming the community in terms of uh, disrupting actually the social networks and social uh, cohesion of these communities. Village Game Scouts and those secret intelligence from the community are members of these communities, so there's a lot of tension um, because um, information for poachers comes from 
villagers, and the villagers are the ones killed uh, for such things. So, um, in my view, militarization has as many sides uh, and ways of of looking. So, for the first time, communities are very much part of it. They have been made part of it, yes, uh, for for obvious reasons. That they, that, I mean, um, I think. I think to militarize is also expensive from above, uh, so this this also need to use the local intelligence to, to uh, register costs involved. Yes. To your mind, what role do international policy frameworks such as the Sustainable Development Goals, such as World Heritage Sites, and other interventions play in conservation? I think Tina should because your work on the Berlin curse is, is I, I just learned so much. Well, I, I think, um, in my view, international frameworks uh, provide um, guidelines, directives, and most in most cases, for especially developing countries, these are top-down directives. Mm-hmm which uh, the, the states may or may not have the powers to, to, you know, to choose not to implement. And they play a powerful role in terms of steering conservation development agenda in, 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 in these countries. I think I will just give an example of the relations that exist between these, for instance, sustainable development goals and, and uh, conservation in the country. If you look at the first goal, for example, for example, it's about ending poverty in all its forms, and we have seen how much biodiversity conservation is linked to poverty alleviation, very closely linked, and conservation policies have also increasingly been formulated towards that. Also, development goal, um, sustainable development goal number 15, which is about protection, expansion, protection of terrestrial ecosystems and so on. It is also um, development of states and communities is part of that expansion, and we have really seen this expansion. And as Dan have mentioned, we... Uh, we have done a lot of these expansions. The Aichi target, conservation target, biodiversity target was is supposed to be 17% by 2020, at least with the worldwide uh, rate of achievement. We have already done 40%. So we are in far Tanzania. in Tanzania. We have gone uh, um, uh, so far in, in expanding these protected areas. Now, how how these are connected to now poverty alleviation? How is this connected to human development? Uh, because the sustainable development goals have a lot of aspirations for human development. I may not really have uh, a lot here in terms of the positive outcomes of this and me- measures of these positive outcomes, I think, are difficult in my view and from the kind of research that I do. We have seen a lot of promotion of public-private partnerships. Um, partnerships are increasing in terms of intensity of work terms and uh, funding in conservation. 
also community-based conservation has promoted tourism as a way of these communities to gain income from uh, tourism activities. We have seen a lot of state, state-led rent-seeking, where timber extraction is now led by state agencies, um, mineral extraction, and so on. Um, uh, but again, when you go back to how much this is actually alleviating poverty, it's, it's, it's not very clear. It's, 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 we are still back to saying there's more that we do in conservation uh, and in terms of expanding protected areas and in terms of securing land for wildlife, securing land for forests, than we do for human development of uh, those areas, around those areas, and as um, a country at large. Can we let others speak? So what I found first, uh, fascinating about your work, Christine, is that when you took the example of the Salu Game Reserve, which has world heritage status, which is um, policed and, and governed by UNESCO, as I understand it, and the Salu Game Reserve... Um, what is going through changes, one of which could be this considerable dam built at Stiglitz Gorge at the behest of the President. What was fascinating for me in the work that you did was the way in which you showed how the World Heritage Commission, is it? Yes. Of UNESCO, then took a very active role in suggesting changes to the Salu Game Reserve. Um, as a result of the, the, the loss of habitat that was going to be incurred within it. And so here you've got a really interesting example of the international policy framework that seemed to me to have a very powerful influence within Tanzania. Could you, just for the record here, just explain, is it appropriate to say what... what what it was doing, what, what changes ha- were happening? No, 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 it's, it's okay. The paper is almost published, you know, so it will come out anyway. Um, and what I did is actually to look at how these decisions uh, the, that come from major global frameworks, conservation frameworks, and being implemented and funded by big uh, conservation NGOs and so on, how do they evolve, How do they come down to the states and how do states also implement what does that means uh, on the ground? So I looked at uh, the way um, the World Heritage uh, Site, Salus Game Reserve, is governed, and the role that UNESCO's World Heritage uh, Commission uh, has in the expansion of the, of the area. It happens that Salus is, is actually faced with many threats, including the, uh, the Stiglas Gorge, which is within the the, 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 the reserve, but we have uranium extractions, uh, explorations, we have oil and gas uh, uh, explorations. As all these are threats to the World Heritage Site, and there was, um, there was a discussion in the Commission that this uh, should be now recategorized to become a World Heritage Site which is under threat. Uh, by 2014, uh, a suggestion that it should be you know, actually uh, downgraded. Um, and the discussion went on to the extent that uh, the agreement was actually whether to retain the heritage site on the list, uh, but with conditions that all the threats are you know, halted and also areas that have a lot of damage, like uranium sites, must be carved out. The border must be changed, 
the side strenuous mining sites must be carved out because this, the, the, there are regulations that govern whether have the sites. Uh, however, what my paper is really looking at is how uh, the commission um, uh, is, is very clear about the fact that the heritage site cannot change its form and size. So the uranium site must be compensated to retain the same size. Um, there's a lot of discussion between the state and, and the World Heritage uh, Commission, uh, but eventually um, the targeted area for compensation of uranium site is happens. It happens to be a community, uh, community land which has been, you know, put under conservation um, through community-based conservation. So there are currently wildlife management areas. Uh, which means uh, it's actually village land which will go into a game reserve to compensate for the uranium site. So if you look at how these World well, well, Heritage Site um, uh, regulations uh, are implemented and what it means to, to, the, to, the, to the resources on the ground, then you, you actually come to ask how much do we need. So lose itself is... Is uh, 50,000 kilometer square, which is bigger than some of the countries here in Europe. And ask again how many elephants we need in one place and what that means to the people on the ground. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, the challenge at this point is that so you've got a new president who has made it very clear that he's going to review all international regulation and laws and protocols that Tanzania has ratified to see if they are serving the interests of the country. So I think that's going to be the next challenge because, you know, it's taking this very nationalistic position and say that we have agreed into so many international agreements, not just in conservation but in other sectors mm -hmm. as well. And he has, I think he has formed a team, as I understand, who is going to review everything and see whether this is in interest of Tanzania. But back to the SG, SDG point, something that struck me was two months ago the Ministry of Environment and, and the World Bank launched a new conservation environment blueprint. Mm. Yeah, they call it the State of Environment in Tanzania. So it's, mm. and you've seen the, it's funded by the World Bank and the Swedish, but they're forwarded by Bela Bede, the World Bank country director and the Minister General Makamba. So I, when, when, when you send in these questions, I just did a quick search and, you know, it's a 140-page document. SDGs appear only twice. Uh, word conservation appears 63 times. Nature, uh, 23 times. You know. <laughs> Maybe to, to just add to what the state, SDGs, the problem remains who make these SDGs. I mean, the very people that the SDGs are meant to save, to what extent do they participate in the SDGs? And no, 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 no wonder that in some of the very reports, like the environmental blueprint report, the SDGs are mentioned just twice. But again, however much they are not made by the people on the ground, then they affect their livelihoods, they affect their justices, they affect their democratic participation in various processes. Because they are used to justify some of the national level policies that they are being aligned this global level policy like the SDGs. For example, SDG 15 and SDG 1, they might be contradictory. 
in terms of having more men put at the conservation, that would be a happy ending for the new British East. But then that, 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 that's a sad thing for the people who depend on Abatkwa and for their daily livelihoods. So to me, I would say the SDGs, if they are looked at very carefully, they might, not, they might be acting as something that will hinder the social and economic development of the people, especially the indigenous people. So the international policy framework um, have a lot of fine words often, and you see that whether, um, whether you're talking about the sustainable development goals or the World Heritage Sites or the, the conference of the parties on the Commission on the Biodiversity Convention. Yeah. Um, and the, sometimes I think, well, this is just rhetoric. These are They talk about involving communities and when you get into the detail of it. Um, in fact, the communities are adversely incorporated or, 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 or suffering in various, sort of, in various different ways. And yet that rhetoric still has importance because it doesn't change the tone of the debate. And you can see that when you get a leader in power who doesn't care what tone they can adopt. Um, and it adversely affects politics and it, it um, results in worse outcomes because there's no higher standard to be for people to follow, follow to. So even if the implementation is weak, uh, the more um, high, higher ideals, there's still a, a useful bar to have in place to aim for. But also you could add that, you know, at that point, you know, like in Tanzania, the influence of international partners, so you, you've got big bodies like WWF and IUCN who have influenced conservation policies in Tanzania for many years. Now the influence is really uh, declining. Uh, they are still active somehow, but not as they used to be. So WWF, you know, tried to campaign against the, this big stingless coach dam in the south, and they face a very strong stat and... So I think the, influ- the influence has really uh, uh, gone down. You still have the usual suspects of DFID in the region, Sweden, uh, GIZ, Germans, they're still very active, but, but not as influential as they used to be a few years back, I would say. What I would like to add on the Sustainable Development Goals is I just find it fascinating that this is arguably the most universally agreed global governance framework that we have, and it has, as many of you have said already, it has significant implications for not just reporting, but also the way funds are dispersed, the way understandings of what poverty is or understandings of what conservation is filter down from the global level to the um, local level and what I find fascinating as both Christine and Wilhelm touched on is that the trade-offs that exist within the sustainable development goals are never really mentioned in a serious way so you mentioned for example the potential for contradictions between SDG 15 life on land and poverty alleviation arguably you've got similar potential contradictions also with SDG 2 on zero hunger and sustainable agriculture Um, there are other links to SDG 8 around decent work and economic growth so the way that the sustainable development goals have been set up arguably is sort of just to silo human development as a whole into different goals which don't necessarily acknowledge the many, many connections that exist between those goals. And the way that 
I think this is problematic for conservation is exactly as you said. If the goal is um, to expand protection of terrestrial ecosystems, as is enshrined both in the Aichi biodiversity targets and again in the SDGs, and that has very serious implications for local lands, for the communities who depend on those resources. And then if, through the justification of the SDGs, you implement um, conservation in a certain way, then what does that say about the role that communities can and should play in implementing the, the SDGs and sort of bringing about this threefold goal of Agenda 2030 around people, planet and prosperity. Prosperity for whom? What people and whose interests are being prioritized and what kind of planet is being described as desirable? And that is really what makes me quite nervous about the SDGs in in general. As much potential as they have um, the way that particularly SDG 15 Life on Land is framed around sort of top-down ideas, um, both exclusion-based and market-based ideas playing a role, communities being mentioned exactly once and only in reference to combating wildlife poaching. Um, I think that is a rather problematic framing and arguably even a step back on previous um, international agreements. How do you think conservation conservation needs to change going forward, and why? Yeah, conservation needs to change going forward for the simple reason that what we have uh, witnessed over time uh, is that despite all these approaches that we are trying to use to save nature, to to halt the biodiversity loss to try to make the world a better place to live is that they've kind of failed. And instead we have impact on uh, crisis measures or approaches that have tended not to yield the, the, the best results. And part of this problem, as we have already said, is that they've been embedded in the way these approaches have been implemented, especially at the, the, the local levels, from the international to local levels, how these ideas have been uh, embedded and how they have been implemented. So I would say that we need to change, first of all, the mindset on what should be protected and for who. Like when we talk about nature, what is nature and nature for who? Human nature or nature itself, should we continue to separate humans from nature or should we also agree with the fact that humans are part and parcel of nature? And that will bring forth the idea of maybe, for example, in terms of protected areas, having areas that are being promoted as uh, uh, Fletcher is saying in the, the application that we, are, we need pro- promoted areas, not protected areas, where people will feel part of the areas and then feel the need to collect. Maybe on how best we, I would, I, would, I would not like to see, like, for example, disappearing of nature, but also no one is interested to see this disappearing of the human species. So we must get a rest to see both of a bit of disturbed nature and a bit of uh, human beings who are ready to live with the costs associated with protected nature. That's all I would say. I think would echo that and I think express it by saying that I think that conservation needs to become both much more mainstream and much less mainstream at the same time. 
it needs to become more mainstream because in many respects conservation is still marginalised um, it, it features as a minority of the territories of most countries um, so it's a considerable minority, minority of the territory of most countries in terms of protected areas it is um, weak in terms of the money it gets put into it it is far less important in many people's eyes than um, really strong growing economies um, or particularly high paying jobs and things like that so um, conservation remains in that respect something which is marginal to many countries, many businesses many governments' interests and it would be nice if conservation were to become more central station, more important and if our um, carbon budgets and biodiversity doesn't matter more to people and at the same time when it becomes mainstream it would be great if it became more mainstream in less mainstream ways which, by which I mean that the mainstream way of handling conservation is through protected areas is through offsetting damage we do um, is through um, more policing more um, heavy security in terms of when it comes to deal with, with poaching crises or with uh, illegal wildlife trade and there are many different and interesting alternative approaches to tackling those problems that could become much more um, much more useful if they were more widely used I would echo those two kids there's nothing really to add well I'm quite excited to see where um, the research project that um, Wilhelm and Dan and myself with other colleagues in Tanzania, Brazil, California, Finland and the Netherlands are involved in this research project around convivial conservation and how we take that forward um, because I think both of your um, ideas around sort of promoted areas but also making conservation both more and less mainstream I think to me that resonates quite strongly with sort of trying to come up with ways for conservation to be more convivial if that makes sense so in the sense of socially just in the sense of not separating economic growth as the main priority from the environmental externalities that this growth entails generally for the people who are not paid the large salaries that you mentioned and coming towards a place whereby we all manage to think through the environmental, social and economic implications of behaviours together rather than sort of separating them out as more or less relevant because as you said if we want to preserve both biodiversity and humans going forward then we can't continue pretending that they can be separated and environmental externalities don't really matter as much as long as there is a booming economy which is bizarre on a number of different levels and has also significant social implications for everyone involved. So if we can find a way to sort of be more responsible in our approaches to thinking about conservation, about the economy, about people, then hopefully that has positive implications overall. Anything anybody wants to add? Thank you for organising this session.